0: Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. Today, SI's Brian Strauss joins me to talk about Jonathan Gonzalez choosing Mexico over the United States, Eric Lehigh's blinder to dethrone Arsenal in the FA Cup, the new U.S. January camp roster, and what it was like for Brian to attend the Baltimore Blast indoor game over the weekend. Onward! As promised, Brian Strauss... Has joined me from Washington D.C. I'm in New York. Brian, how are you, man?
1: Hey, Grant. I'm in a different part of Washington than normal. I'm at my mom's house. Nice. We had a uh, what was the storm called? The cluster. The
0: the bomb cyclone.
1: Bomb. Yeah. I was about to say a a naughty word, so I'm. Thank you for interrupting (laughs) me in time. Um, I guess this thing always does wind up with the parental advisory on it. But, uh, you know, if I can avoid doing that literally within the first 30 seconds of the podcast, that's good. Yeah. So, all my power went out, my internet, and all that kind of fun stuff. And so I, uh, I absconded to mom's to uh, spend the night and eat all of her crackers. Cool, man. So, here we are.
0: Well, it's good to have you. I uh, I do know that this weekend you went to see a Baltimore Blast indoor game and that gets me very excited because my roots are being a Kansas City Comets fan in the 1980s M- MISL days.
1: I it's funny cuz I I never went to a Blast game as a kid. I mean when that was when that for there were many many years where that was the only pro soccer in in this in you know when we were growing up, right? I mean sort of too young for NASL and obviously well before MLS uh, MISL was pro soccer. Um, but I grew up in, in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, about 10 miles outside of DC and Baltimore was a hike and, and my family, we weren't Orioles fans. I mean, we didn't see ourselves as sort of, you know, Baltimoreans and, and, uh, you know, soccer to me at that point was, you know, we'd go see George Mason, uh, you know, when, that kind of thing. And then the ASL started. So I'd never been to a blast game in my entire life. And so a a group of us uh, decided uh, for the hell of it to haul up to Towson, Maryland, which is well north of Baltimore, in absurdly frigid, like face-melting conditions. Um, And it was a lot of fun. Like, it really was. Like, I mean, it's a a really nice uh, kind of small but modern arena uh, in Towson. and, And they had a crowd of like I don't know, like 4,000 or so, but that kind of almost, you know, was two thirds full. Um, a lot of kids, obviously it's like very family oriented. Uh, and, and like, I think every kid there had some role to play in the production. There nice. were ropers and Irish dancers and a million kids during the pregame intro. And, 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 you know, every, you know, I, th- I think that was like half their attendance strategy was like, <laughs> buy a ticket and you will get on the field at some point. Um, <laughs> Fred uh uh recently of d c United and the Philadelphia Union uh, oh my God played for the Harrisburg team
0: okay um
1: there was a there was a completely obvious goal disallowed uh mm-hmm. or not given which changed the course of the result and it just kind of made it all seem like minor league mayhem um the the sort of the hilarious like jock jams. <laughs> you know uh um announcer who goes over time you know like 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 if it was, if you were going to do like a like a minor league sports starter kit it would come with the cd the announcer and you know the cheerleaders and it was it was it was wholesome and silly and fun um a guy did his acl on one of the seams in the carpet oh. um yeah it was it was it was uh, so other than that it was uh it was cool and it was neat to see Four thousand people out on a on a freezing Saturday night to watch uh, to watch pro indoor soccer. It was uh, it was cool, and the Blast have been around forever. I mean, they've been around uh, like since the eighties. So, well, um,
0: I have some good stories of my my youth involving hating the Baltimore Blast and their superstar Stan the Man Stamenkovic, who he used to scream at and boo uh, when he played in Kansas City against my Comets. If you want listeners to see a great relic. Uh, early 1980s misl check out online google baltimore blast and spaceship and there's this great scene of uh, a spaceship descending from the rafters in baltimore and then dispatching the starting lineup for the baltimore blast uh it's pretty great uh i also interviewed john paul Delacamera, jp della camera as he's known now uh, a couple years ago about calling a baltimore blast game like in the early 90s when they visited england he was over there and called it and i'm totally drawing a blank now on the great announcer from england who called that with him jesus i'm totally killing it was this. not
1: it it was not jesus
0: it was not um Oh it was, no! It was Martin. No, it was Mar- It was Martin Tyler. That's what it was. It was Martin Tyler who called this game. Uh, it was like Baltimore Blast against some English club indoors, uh, which I thought was kind of cool.
1: That would be a great three-man booth:
0: J.P. Delacamera, Martin Tyler, and and Jesus or Stomankovich. the late Stansmankovich. I might, I, I should no longer say disparaging things about him. I guess, but I'm glad you got to see a Baltimore Blast game.
1: The guy who scored the the guy who scored the overtime winner, which again happened only because the very obvious goal that Harrisburg scored uh I think in the third quarter right in front of us was not given and we were all just like laughing hysterically like we just we just thought it was the funniest thing I mean the ball so clearly went in the goal and and it was just like nothing happened I mean just everyone maybe we were the only ones in the entire place who saw it but um the guy who scored the game-winning goal for Baltimore uh is a guy named Andrew Hoxie I just had to look that up Mm -hmm. um but uh he is. Uh, he went to William and Mary uh, in, in Virginia. Um, uh, played for the Rhinos, Rochester Rhinos, uh, the early part of this decade. Uh, but anyway, he has a spectacular uh, Mister Pringles esque mustache oh, nice. uh, that that puts Sasha questions to absolute shame. Wow. Uh, and they sell little, you know, little little poxy mustaches you can hold up in front of your face. Um, and, and he scored the game winner. And he seems like sort of like a, like to the extent that there is a Baltimore Blast icon. Uh, it's Andrew Hoxie and his mustache. So it was an eventful evening. Um, and uh, I, would, uh, I would recommend it. It was fun.
0: Well, I would love to spend the entire podcast on indoor soccer. Uh, I thought we would branch out a little bit here to hit some headlines. Jonathan Gonzalez. As apparently, it's being reported by Univision, by Steve Goff from the Washington Post, as we record this on Monday, that Gonzalez has decided to file a one-time switch and not play for the U.S., but play for Mexico. Uh, and here's a guy who, still a teenager, has had a terrific recent several months with Monterey uh, from Northern California, originally got discovered in uh, a competition, was it... Uh, Alianza competition. And here we are. Uh, it looks like this might be a situation where the leadership vacuum at U.S. soccer has caused Gonzalez, who has played for the U.S. at youth level, to go with Mexico.
1: Yeah, I don't think, I mean, obviously the other name that comes to mind here is is Giuseppe Rossi, right? And, 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 and the difference between these two situations is that Giuseppe Rossi grew up dreaming of playing for Italy. You know, he had, you know, he grew up with you know with picturing himself in the in in the Azuri. Um Jonathan Gonzalez uh you know grew up wanting to play for the USA and he did play for the USA as a junior player. So to 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 lose a guy to 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 lose a guy you never really had is one thing, but to lose a guy who was literally on your doorstep and wanted to be part of the program is um what's the word? I mean it's negligent is too kind, right? I mean it's just an an extraordinary uh, uh, bureaucratic screw up and and institutional screw up, and it speaks to the need um, to have someone who oversees U.S. soccer's technical development on a long term basis, apart from the given coaches at the different age groups. If there is a technical director, if there is a GM, there's a you know an Oliver bierhoff type figure uh, at U.S. Soccer. This this doesn't happen. Um, and again, you know, uh, vesting all that power in Jurgen Klinsmann, um, and then being having to fire Jurgen and not having anyone else to sort of look at the long term direction, because all Bruce Arena could do was try to patch things together quickly enough to try to get us to Russia. Um, just, just, uh, just a real sort of dereliction of duty on the part of the Federation, and uh, they're going to pay a heavy, heavy price now because uh, Jonathan Gonzalez looks like he's going to be a good player for a really long time
0: yeah he 's a defensive midfielder if you watch the uh, Liguilla the Mexican playoffs uh he was terrific, uh, except maybe in the last game, but he was playing in all of those games and just a terrific future and that 's a huge blow to the united states and I know you know there's some positive things happening with guys like Weston McKenney and other guy central midfielder teenager doing so well in Germany. And the US has been winning these battles in recent years. Got Jesse Gonzalez to commit to the US to file a one time switch. But uh, one thing that Jurgen Klinsman, I think there's basic agreement that he did really well was to recruit. He's like the John Calipari of US soccer coaches. He was able to get guys who were dual or triple nationals to commit to the United States. And there's really nobody there right now. And as you say, this if there was a general manager of the U.S. men's program and or you know a general manager of the U.S. women's program, this might not be happening. And so that's a big blow. And I'm curious to see now if Gonzalez finds a way onto the Mexico World Cup team.
1: Yeah. Well, as as our uh, as our editor Avi Creditor, tweeted earlier this morning, I mean, who who was going to make the call to, to Gonzalez? Right? Was it going to be the outgoing president? Uh, was it going to be the interim coach? You know, there, there's just a – there's a vacuum of, of sort of long-term leadership at U.S. soccer right now, uh, and, and a structure wasn't in place uh, to handle um, Klinsman's failure or the qualification setback or any of those kinds of things. Um, you know, someone suggested uh, – you know, the, the best two suggestions I've seen so far on that are uh, Landon Donovan or Oprah um, are – who, who should have called Jonathan Gonzalez and said, Hey, you're wanted. Um, And you know what? And, and, and maybe he wasn't wanted, right? I mean, you know, fans want him and media wants him and, 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 you know, you know, obviously no one, no one at us soccer uh, made the kid, um, you know, he, there've been reports that he was disappointed not to have at least received a call ahead of the Portugal friendly in November saying, look, you know, you're in the middle of your season. Uh, it doesn't make sense to to bring you all the way to Portugal uh, to play in this in this meaningless game. Monterey may not even you know have wanted to to release him for it. It was a FIFA date, um, but you know there wasn't even that level of communication because again, who's going to make that call? Who's got the the long term vision? Uh,
0: well, right? the guy who's got the relationship is Tab Ramos, the under twenty coach. Uh, I I know he's been in touch with Gonzalez, but. Uh, Tab Ramos is up in the air, too. I mean, he's got Tab Ramos has a situation where he would love to be the senior U.S. coach, but that's going to depend on who hires the next U.S. senior coach, and that may be dependent on who wins the presidential election next month. So there's just so much that's up in the air right now, and it's, it's really dispiriting to see this happen. Now, keep in mind, Tab Ramos didn't take Jonathan Gonzalez to the Under-20 World Cup. Right. So, I mean, I don't know how, how close the relationship is. I know they have one. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we're waiting for final confirmation as we record this, but it looks like it's, uh, it's happening and he's gone, uh, which is terribly unfortunate for the U.S. Now, some players who will be playing for the U.S. soon have been called into the roster for Camp Cupcake, uh, as it's often been called, the January Camp out in Southern California. Uh, You wrote a story that is on SI.com about this roster. What are some of the big takeaways for you?
1: In addition to no Gonzalez, who uh, probably, you know, again, unlikely because Monterey has started their season, but who knows what could have been discussed or arranged or talked about or whether an invitation would have been extended or any of that, it's also interesting that there are no FC Dallas players, including (laughs) Kellen Acosta, on the roster. Uh, FC Dallas would not release its players. (laughs) for this camp. That has to be a first, right? This has to be the first time an MLS team has basically, you know, turned up its nose at the national team. It's really quite remarkable. And again, it just kind of speaks to the the state of affairs right now uh, with U.S. soccer and the national team program. And I, I don't I'm not pinning this on Dave Sarakin. He's, he's got to work with what he's got to work with. And it seems like he's been a professional throughout this whole thing and he he did a decent job with the group in Portugal but you know uh the MLS preseason starts on the 22nd I believe and FC Dallas is like you know we're not going to you know we're not going to spend have our players uh spend time uh with a program that has no long-term direction or foundation right now and we'll keep him here and that's just kind of a sort of a you know you got to you got to Kind of try to wrap your head around that. I'm obviously having trouble doing it. I cannot spe- even speak the words at the moment.
0: Well, it is surprising, and I, and I look at where we were a year ago when Bruce Arena had just taken over. There was a sense of renewal and some optimism heading into what everyone thought 2017 would be, which was a you know a year in which the U.S. would qualify for the World Cup. I went out to L.A. wrote a magazine story on Bruce Arena, and there was just a real positive vibe, despite the fact that the u s had gotten zero points out of the first two uh, games of the hex, and uh, we're a long ways away from that right now
1: it's It's amazing that was a year ago yeah no it's real it's good you brought that up um, the guys were the guys were thrilled uh, to have uh, to that the, the change was made um, everyone's mood at camp was great um, it was cool being out there uh, I remember walking. Walking back from training back to the StubHub Center. That's what it's called right now, right? The StubHub yep. Center? Right. Um, <laughs> let's mix it up. Uh, walking back, I think, with Josie Altador and a couple of the other guys. And Altador was talking about, we were just walking back. We were all, everyone was finished and we were all walking back. And Altador was talking about the, they, I guess they had just announced that the Chargers were going to be playing at, at StubHub Center in Carson. And so he's like, "Did you see this? Did you see this about the Chargers? How are you know? How are they going to get an NFL team in here? You know, we were just kind of like having this very kind of lighthearted, goofy conversation about how amazing it was that an NFL team is going to be playing in an MLS stadium." And I just kept thinking that would never have happened under Klinsman. It just never would have. Like we, we, there never would have been that kind of relaxed environment. I would have been taken out by a sniper if I had been walking back with a player, you know, back to the stage. It just wouldn't have happened. And you know talking to I remember talking to Benny failhaber and Chad Marshall and you know Nick Ramondo and Michael Bradley and a bunch of other guys and and everyone was in a great mood um and uh yeah I guess I don't know the vast majority of the players that are gonna be in camp this time um but you know definitely some familiar names uh there's uh, a few guys with uh twenty or so caps Giassi's artists Juan agadello um maybe one other uh you know, Jordan Morris, of course, uh, who's, you know, a Gold Cup and an MLS Cup winner. Um, Christian Ramirez from Minnesota United, a great story, uh, finally gets a call-up. Uh, there's a few cohorts of younger MLS, uh, you know, the, the guys from RSL, uh, uh, you know, Justin Glad, Brooks Lennon, um, the DC United midfield, uh, um, Ian Harks making his debut, uh, Paul Ariola, who had some some appearances under under Bruce. Um, but mostly it's uh bill Hamid is the only european player uh in camp and and he of course is yet to play for Michelin and in, in denmark uh just signed with them um and other than that it's it's young m l s guys uh i think two thirds of the two thirds of the camp is uh is you know twenty four or under half the camp's never been capped um and i you know all you can really do is give them a run and get you know give them a give him a taste of it because the next coach coming in will will have his own plans and have his own assessment of players. And uh, it's just a strange sort of temp- very, very temporary bandaid uh, to get some of these guys a workout while we wait to see who wins the election and who the next coach is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I do think we're in a situation here where if you're into the, uh, following emerging talent, that there uh, is some reason for excitement here. Some of the names that you mentioned, uh, there is going to be uh, a friendly against Bosnia and Herzegovina later this month, It's still a January camp, though. And so in terms of, like, mainstream excitement about this month, I don't think there's going to be a lot. Uh, Obviously, the U.S. women's team has their own camp and will have their own friendly uh, later this month. And, you know, I think as the year goes on, people will be getting more and more excited about this U.S. women's team as it gets closer to World Cup uh, qualifying in that tournament in October for World Cup 2019 in France. I did interview Julie Foudy on our uh, Planet Football SITV show last week, and I I did remind her not to make any assumptions on qualifying for a World Cup, even if you think it's an obvious thing that'll happen, and she laughed at that one. You know, I do think there's one thing I want to talk about and just kind of switching gears here. You mentioned Gold Cup last year. Eric Lehigh was a guy who was pretty heavily involved in that U.S. Gold Cup triumph, and Eric Lehigh had one of the— the great performances we've seen by an American abroad in quite a while this weekend, as Nottingham Forest defeated reigning FA Cup champ Arsenal uh, in uh, Arsenal's first game in the FA Cup, and Eric Lehigh, of all people scored two goals in a four-two victory, including just a fantastic goal that put them ahead in that game. Wow! What are your thoughts on this? Like, how did you know? Did, did this just come out of nowhere?
1: Um, Eric Lehigh is, is just turned 29, I think. Um, and the guy has, I don't know, a dozen, how many, a dozen caps somewhere around there. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of remarkable to me. Um, and he's a name that has never really been entirely forgotten. Um, oh, and before I, I, yes, the second goal, the, the taking it off the chest and, and, and sort of the, the, the looping. Your half volley was just gorgeous. I mean, just, just, a, a the, the, top class finish. And, and, you know, here, here's a guy who has been, um, grinding it out, uh, in, in, in the English second division for a long, long time. Um, he, he was at Villa for a while, was on loan. Um, uh, but he's been at, he's been at Nottingham Forest now for, for five years or so. Um, and it's just kind of remarkable to me that for a in a country where outside back has been at a a position at a premium that he hasn't gotten more of a look. And, and, and I feel like, I feel like when his name has come up, there's been sort of this subtle feedback from the U S soccer side that, I mean the Federation side that it's like, yeah, yeah, we know about him, but you know, he just wasn't that highly rated. It just, you know, if if he was better, he'd be called in more like that kind of message. Um, And yet he continues to hold his spot at Forrest, and he continues to contribute, and he continues to prove that he's a, a consistent week-in, week-out professional, and again, it, it wasn't like he was he was playing a position where there were you know robust resources, and so it's just one of those things where I always kind of wondered, you know, what's up with this guy? Why, why hasn't he gotten more of a chance? What's the issue been? Um, it, and if they don't rate the league, if they don't think the league is good enough, well, I mean, again, this is... <laughs> You know, we've talked about American soccer and federation arrogance before. Uh, this would be another one to put in that column.
0: So, isn't it fair I, to say, Brian, that the championship might be one of the top eight leagues in the world?
1: Maybe. I mean, it's 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 not it's not worse than MLS. <laughs> it's not worse than MLS, right? So, if anything, it may be even kind of similar to MLS, right? And just in terms of. Of, of, of the athleticism and pace and sort of robust nature of the play. I mean, it's going to be a lot more like MLS than, than some of the other top leagues in Europe. So, um, you know, I, I, he, he comes across like a nice, humble guy. He comes across as someone who doesn't, um, you know, let this bother him too much. He seemed very grateful. I know, mean, over the summer when he was at the Gold Cup, he, with his own money, he flew his, his wife and I think he's got two kids maybe, yeah. but he, he flew his wife and kids to every game during the gold cup and put them up in a hotel with his own money, just because it was so exciting for him uh, to be part of this competition and to be part of the national team that he wanted his family to experience it with him. Um, and so that's cool. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't seem like he feels like he's owed anything, um, which is the attitude you'd want. And yet it hasn't been enough for him over his career. And, and now he's, uh you know, now he's closing in on 30 and, 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 isn't really an option for a, for a national team that's building toward a World Cup five years from now or the CONCACAF Nations League, which you you <laughs> completely overlooked in your assessment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I would say about Eric Lehigh is I am glad that Eric Lehigh is getting some memorable moments attached to him, things that we can visualize when we think of Eric Lehigh that are not Giovanni Dos Santos' goal going over his head into the goal in the 2011 Gold Cup final. And I thought it was kind of an eerie similarity that this magnificent goal that Eric Lehigh scores against Arsenal, where he traps it off his chest and then loops it into the upper left corner, that was the same type of shot into the same corner of the goal that Dos Santos hit over him in the Rose Bowl that day. And so I feel like, maybe in a sense, Eric Lehigh got back at that corner of the goal and got back at a little bit of history the other day. And yeah, I think that's kind of cool. You know, I, he's, he's probably not going to have many more games with the national team. And I think that's terribly unfortunate. But to take out the defending champion and uh, the FA Cup like that also restored my faith a little bit in the FA Cup and that it's worth watching because a lot of those games haven't been worth watching. But this was very much a giant killer situation with uh, a Forest team that's actually been pretty bad this year, taking down and outplaying a pretty abject Arsenal team.
1: And that's always fun. <laughs> Arsenal schadenfreude is a thing.
0: <laughs> Couple more topics here. Uh, I want to talk briefly about the U.S. soccer election uh, coming up on February 10th. Seems like we have new stuff every week. One story I did this week was on uh, where candidates are getting their funding. And I asked each of the eight candidates if they were paying for their campaigns entirely out of their own pocket. And if not, who were their top three donors and uh, it turned out that uh, basically uh, there are three candidates who are not funding their own campaigns either by themselves or with their spouse uh, and that is uh, Eric Winalda, Kyle Martino and Steve Gans. and I had asked all those guys if any of those donors have business before U.S. Soccer one of Martino's donors uh, owns a club here, nonprofit club in the New York area uh, that he's hoping to get into the development Academy. So that's one thing. Uh, other than that, the only other donor who had uh, business before us soccer is Ricardo Silva, the owner of Miami FC. That,
1: that is a last but not least situation right there.
0: Who, who is uh, supporting Eric Winaldo. And, you know, I think that's good, obviously, that Eric Winalda put that out there. And there's certainly nothing against the rules that this is happening. Um, is there any take that you have on it? Yeah,
1: it's not against the rules. And again, yes, I agree. Not against the rules. You know, glad Eric was, was willing to discuss that. Um, I, I guess my only my only potential concern is that, you know, Silva, Silva, owns and runs a a media rights company that already has made news uh, for, um, you know, attempting to get MLS uh, to to negotiate a, a new TV rights deal and the very structure of the league itself Um, and so, and, and obviously Silva owns Miami FC of the NASL. So, so Silva's, Silva's interest in American soccer is established. His financial interest in American soccer is established. And while there's nothing wrong with him with supporting a candidate, um, if Eric Winaldo wins the election and the, the, the negotiating period for the next round of broadcast rights comes up there, the current deal with some expires in 2022, Um, but the negotiating period, I believe would open before that. Um, you know, what, what, what are Eric's is Eric beholden to responsible to, uh, Silva and his company and does Silva and his company have, have a level of access that maybe someone else doesn't now because of this relationship. Now, obviously the, the ties between us soccer MLS and some are well-established, uh, we, I think most of us agree that they are problematic to a certain extent, um, but we don't necessarily want to re- replace one company with strange ties with another one with, with sort of strange ties to the U.S. soccer leadership. So I think it's fair to kind of monitor that. Uh, there's no reason to believe there's anything untoward happening at all, especially because they've disclosed it, but it's certainly fair to monitor that going forward if Winaldo wins the election.
0: Yeah, and I would also point out that uh, Ricardo Silva – is part of the NASL group that still has a case they filed against U.S. soccer uh, on sanctioning for the NASL. And he's also part of a case with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is seeking to have FIFA, U.S. soccer, and CONCACAF uh, force the United States into promotion and relegation. So clearly a guy with some very specific interests.
1: Well, and we don't know what, and what's interesting about all this, is that we don't know what... We don't necessarily we don't necessarily know what the president of U.S. Soccer can even do, right? So <laughs> I say we're not quite like, we're not quite sure what the job is. So I can I can wonder whether or not Winalda's relationship with Silva might have an impact on future TV negotiations, and you can wonder whether Silva's relate you know Silva's part in the lawsuit he's helping to fund the lawsuit part in the lawsuit will affect. Uh, a potential decision made by a future president. We don't know what that president. We don't know if that president can can unilaterally. Yeah, sorry, unilaterally or even in concert with certain members of U.S. Soccer or board members, award a media rights contract or affect the sanctioning of a league or league structure. I, I, I don't know. Do you? Like like?
0: Well, it's a board. You know, anything like that's a board decision, not just right. a unilateral president decision.
1: Yeah, so, well, but, but a lot of things have been unilateral president <laughs> decisions, right? I mean, they have been. And, and, and you know, I, we've all heard that, you know, Sunil Gulati was, was discussing a settlement with the, a potential settlement with the NASL um, without notifying the board that he was doing so. Now, nothing came to pass, but he's obviously, Sunil's made a habit of doing things on his own. Um, and sort of maybe or or maybe having the board kind of rubber stamp certain things. And we've heard from certain board members that they want to be now more proactive and be more involved and make sure that stuff doesn't happen again. But I, the only point I'm making and, and making really, really badly is that the the influence of any donors, the influence of anyone supporting any candidate, it's sort of hard to read what that could even be because we're not even sure – we're not even sure what they're getting, even if they have influence with a presidential candidate. Correct. Because we're not sure how much power the president is going to have.
0: Correct. Um, also, a couple of other quick things here. MLS expansion. We're expecting some news here in January. That's what MLS announced. What are you expecting?
1: It's been really quiet. Um, also, I've been <laughs> I have been pretty lazy, to be honest, <laughs> the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I, I think we are where we were, right? Which is, uh, you know the the financial issues that arose with the sacramento ownership group uh now leave Cincinnati as the favorite uh to to get the second team behind nashville and so um you know if i had to if i had to place a bet i would say that at some point in the near future uh we'll be told that Cincinnati is uh is getting team number whatever it'll be uh 26 25 anyway um so uh but yeah it's not like i've been um you know, pounding the pavement to try to figure out what's going on, and I apologize to you and Avi and everyone at Sports Illustrated uh, for my uh, sloth.
0: No worries, my man. A couple other quick things. This is also election-related. Hope Solo came out with uh, a podcast that she apparently recorded before she announced in December that she was running for the U.S. soccer presidency, but it released this week. And it it contained Solo uh, being very critical of Sunil Gulati and Dan Flynn at U.S. Soccer, but also some of her uh, women's national team teammates, calling out Alex Morgan for, it it sounded like being popular not just because of her performance and not performing as well as another player like Carly Lloyd has in the big games. (laughs) What's your sense of this? Hope Solo sounds like a delightful person. <laughs> Here's the thing with Hope Solo. And, and I, 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 I go back a long ways with Hope. I have I wrote a big magazine story about her in 2008 after all of the stuff at the 2007 Women's World Cup. I've enjoyed interacting with Hope Solo on an interview basis over the years. And I like the fact that she's a straight shooter. I do think she has a tendency to to not be a great teammate. And I think she f- thinks she's being a straight shooter by saying this stuff, but I-, I don't think it's all that productive to go after Alex Morgan, who's coming off a terrific year, by the way.
1: Well, there are lots of people that, you know, they they give great – they make for great copy. They give great interviews. They're fun. Um, but, yeah, I mean, being a – you know, I mean, LeVar Ball gives, gives good <laughs> quotes, but I wouldn't want to work with the guy, you know? <laughs>
0: And then another thing here, uh, Kyle Martino, uh, this is sort of a developing story because uh, it's in process here as we're recording on Monday, but I did a story about the candidate surveys filled out by all eight presidential candidates for the Athlete Council, which uh, is a group that will have 20% of the vote in the election, contains current and former U.S. players, many of whom we all know by name, uh, but they, uh, this council, the Athlete Council, sent Uh, a list of very interesting questions to all the candidates, got written responses, and they posted those in their entirety on their website. I did a story today for SI.com about those responses, and what stood out to me was the sort of flashpoint around the role of Soccer United Marketing in the U.S. Soccer Federation, and Kathy Carter gave her most detailed defense to this point about what Soccer United Marketing has done to bring more revenues to U.S. soccer and and other parts of the soccer sphere here. Obviously, they're owned by MLS owners. It's a for-profit company. And then several other candidates going after some, like Eric Winalda, Carlos Cordero, and most strongly, Kyle Martino, who included an allegation that some decided to play the Costa Rica World Cup qualifier at Red Bull Arena to make as much profit as possible and get as many Costa Ricans there as possible. That's getting uh, some pretty strong denials right now from U.S. soccer and Kathy Carter and Soccer United marketing. So that's kind of an in-progress thing as we record this. But do you take anything away from that?
1: I had not heard that.
0: Well, now you have.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, Kyle's Kyle's more... Plugged in, I guess.
0: Um, Actually, no. I think uh, I, I certainly <laughs> didn't have any previous evidence, and I cited that. And I I don't think this is factual. Now, Kyle yeah, I, may have something, but I I haven't seen it, and uh, there's a reason why it's being so vigorously denied.
1: I um, you know, the the some thing is strange. I mean, you know, Kathy Carter makes the point that that you know, some has. Some has brought revenue to U.S. soccer, and, you know, that's obviously true. They have technically brought revenue to U.S. soccer, but what is unclear, and we, I think which is the point that's been raised by a lot of critics, is that U.S. soccer's responsibility is to its members and is and is therefore, you know, in order to, to make good on that responsibility, it has to... to make the deals and do the things that bring in the most revenue possible and is some, the vehicle for that. Uh, if the relationship with some is about some sort of agreement between the league and the Federation, um, and maybe working with someone else would have brought in more revenue then the Federation isn't adhering to its fiduciary responsibilities. And I guess these are the questions being raised by the NASL and by Silva and people like that. And we don't have access to the books, obviously. Um, so it's strange, it's strange that, that, you know, this election has become a referendum on all of these different things. And obviously none of us on the outside have seen these figures and kind of know whether or not U S soccer is, is, is getting the best deal it can from some, or whether it would be, uh, you know, better to, to, uh, make deals elsewhere. But I guess we'll find out either through discovery or, uh, in 2022, uh, when they, uh, when they have a new contract and, and see who else might be interested in these rights.
0: I would point out here that Carlos Cordero said, quote, the unique ownership of some creates conflicts that need to be addressed. Carlos Cordero is the current vice president of U.S. soccer on the board, obviously. And he continues, to avoid any and all conflicts going forward, USSF will need to ensure that any individuals with potential conflicts of interest are recused from any future negotiations with some. That is why I have proposed a new board level commercial committee to be chaired by one of our independent board directors to oversee the entire process. So even a guy very much on the inside like Cordero is questioning things. Yeah, which-
1: the split the split between I don't know what Cordero's chances are, but this the this split between Cordero and Gulati, who for so many years were seen as as sort of, you know, bureaucratically joined at the hip, um the, the, the pretty severe split between them over the past year or whatever is, is another fascinating part of this. Um, you know, Cordero is an insider who very clearly, uh, is at odds with the other insiders and and wants to change things.
0: So lastly, Brian, I wanted to ask you about some of these new MLS kits that we're seeing only three so far, but you're a kit guy. Uh, you're the guy who's in charge of si.com's coverage of new kit releases, especially for MLS. What do you think of the ones you've seen so far?
1: I'm in charge, dude. I've been napping for two weeks. I, I, uh, I need a vacation. To those, to those who are listening, I'm going to let you in on a little personal stuff. I, I haven't had a vacation in a long time, and, and I'm looking at taking one. And so going back to maybe Christmas and maybe going forward for the next few weeks, I'm going to be doing a bad job <laughs> so, or no job at all. Um, and, and Grant is going to shoulder some load here and I apologize and Avi and I love you both. And, um, you know, I'll either bring you something nice from wherever I wind up going or, uh, you'll have to come bail me out. One of the two.
0: Fair enough, man. But, Um, but the kids, the kids, I I guess the big news,
1: the big news is the, is the red bulls are wearing red, right? I mean, they unveiled a red away uniform. And I guess that's cool, right? I mean, I guess New York is red and all that kind of stuff, and they've been wearing sort of that interesting uh, navy and yellow uh, ensemble uh, on the road. But you know, now they're going to wear red, and if, if if like if half of MLS wasn't already wearing red, it would be even cool. <laughs> um, but you know, props to them. So, uh, and I guess Columbus came out with a very funereal uh, black, all black kit with even less yellow on it than the last one did and also very appropriate <laughs> what is your fate what is your favorite uh what's your favorite look in the league
0: well it was it always has been columbus's yellow which they moved yellow. away yeah. from for awesome. for quite a while i personally i'm a kansas city guy and i have an old kansas city wizards uh jersey that is uh black chest and back but all rainbow arms long sleeves
1: Oh wow! I don't think I've seen that. That's awesome,
0: and it is absolutely fantastic, and uh, one of my most treasured uh, soccer keepsakes. So
1: I have a 1998 DC United jersey uh, that was Brian Kamler's, if you remember Brian, yeah. Cam- the midfielder with a uh, who could hit a shot. I've always liked guys who could let one rip. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Camler had a Camler had a good uh, good good shooting boots, but um. Anyway, I, I, I just started at the freelancing, it was, you know, early two thousand, late late 90s, early 2000s, and I was a news aide at the Washington Post and would, would freelance for out-of-town papers during games, you know, DC United would play the, you know, Chicago Fire, and I'd write a story for the Chicago Tribune for 50 bucks or whatever. And I also, um, back then, all the clubs had their own match day programs, and so... Rick Laws, who now works at MLS, was the head of communications for DC United, and Rick would hire me now and then to write like a feature for the match day program. Um, but I guess they didn't have money or they didn't, I, I don't know what happened, but he he paid me in a game-worn Brian Kamler jersey. That was, my, that was my compensation. And this was the gorgeous DC United jersey, the black jersey with the three large white stripes across the chest. To me, of course, you're a Kansas City guy, I'm a DC guy, that's still the most iconic uniform and MLS history, and it's a shame uh, that DC United has been unable to make those make those white stripes work again now for the past few years. But the only issue with it, of course, is that I am 5'7", and and Brian and there were and there were multiple players on that team my size. Um, but Brian Kamler, I don't know. Once you're above six feet, I mean, he, he may as well have been six eight. Like I, you know, so so the jersey the jersey is enormous and essentially unwearable. Um, but it hangs in my closet and is a is a is a good memory. So you I don't wear as a nightshirt. Yeah, but I'm like a, a an adult man. <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess. I guess it was my mom. I was my mom and I wore night shirts.
0: If you, here's my question. If you get a game-worn jersey, do you want them to wash it beforehand? Yes. Okay.
1: A hundred percent.
0: I mean, that makes sense to me, just from a sort of cleanliness standpoint.
1: Yeah, that's why I've never understood the thing where people, like, fans get real excited when they get someone's shoes. yeah. I don't want anyone's shoes. That's just weird and smelly. Like I'm just not interested. So yes, no. It it, it must be washed, and it, and I love it, and it and it's a, it's a cool thing to have, and it's it's hanging in my closet, and I can't wear it. Um, but you know, modern modern looks, and I've written this a million times, and I'm going to keep harping on it. Modern MLS, the br- the branding remain. MLS wants to get away from the idea of being pegged as single entity you know we we want the clubs to have their individual identities and yet it remains it remains that too many of the teams look like the others there are there are, i think 4 teams in the league that have all red primary uniforms that's mm. insane that's absurd i think there are 10 or 11 that have all white uniforms of some kind either primary or or or, or away again if, if i turn on the tv and it's a team in all red playing a team in all white who's playing I should know immediately who's playing when I turn on an MLS game, and too frequently I don't, and that to me that's a failure on a lot of levels, whether it's the league or Adidas or both. It's probably both, but it, uh, it has to get better. So props to any team that has, a, uh, has an identity that's pretty recognizable.
0: I think we'll end on that note, Brian. Uh, I agree with you on this. I like, I like your passion, and we will be back next week but thanks for joining us this week.
1: Maybe maybe you'll be. I may have joined the French front, but but I'll let, I'll let, I'll keep you and Avi posted.
0: (laughs) Brian Strauss. Thanks, man. Yep. Thanks for listening to the planet football podcast. I'd like to thank Brian Strauss as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and sports illustrated who supports this podcast. Please. If you like the pod, do us a big favor. Take a few seconds to like it and write a review. You'd be surprised how much it helps us. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon with a free seven-day trial now. Recent guests include Christian Pulisic, Roberto Martinez, Patrick Vieira, and Julie Foudy. See you next time.